From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. Welcome, Anita and Dan. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, here are the issues. Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who was held for months in Russian prisons on drug charges, was released in a one-for-one prisoner swap for international arms dealer Victor Boot. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in a Georgia runoff election, ensuring Democrats an outright majority in the Senate for the rest of President Biden's current term. President Biden visited the southwest state of Arizona, where a Taiwanese chip giant is building a second U.S. facility. The move highlights the Biden administration's push to bring more of the semiconductor supply chain to the U.S. A jury in Manhattan, New York, found Trump's company guilty of a long-running criminal tax fraud scheme that lasted into his presidency. This case marks the first time his company has been charged, tried, and convicted on criminal charges. Ukrainian forces fought off a fresh round of Russian attacks in the east as technicians raced to restore electricity following Moscow's latest wave of missile strikes that caused power disruptions across the country amid dropping temperatures. And China announced its most sweeping changes to its tough anti-COVID policies. The revisions come after protests across the country and the crippling of the world's second largest economy. Those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, first, the release of Brittany Griner that was negotiated in the United Arab Emirates in a prisoner swap. So, Anito, what is the White House further saying on this release? So the president spoke about this shortly after the news broke, and they released the news that Brittany Griner has been freed in exchange for a fairly notorious detainee in the U.S. named Victor Boot. You might remember his name or know who he is if you've seen the Nicolas Cage movie Lord of War. He was a notorious arms dealer who sold to everyone from Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, militants in Rwanda. So he served about half of his 25-year sentence, and now he is en route presumably to Russia in exchange for Brittany Griner coming here. Another thing the president said that was notable was that there is another detainee that the U.S. has been trying to free. His name is Paul Whelan. He's a former Marine, and they were unable to incorporate him into this prisoner swap. And he assured the American public that the White House is still seized of the matter and still working very assiduously on doing that, but they just couldn't get him this time. So that's where we are right now. You know, Anita, I was very struck that when President Biden spoke about this on Thursday morning, he said that it's his job to make the tough decisions and to protect U.S. citizens. I guess the tough decision was to release a convicted arms dealer, boot someone that the U.S. government had called a danger to the world, but now sending him back to Russia. And President Biden also said that Americans, as they travel around the world, should take precautions and heed any travel warnings from the U.S. government, indicating that it just can be very painful, troublesome for an American to be arrested overseas. Frankly, that's whether the person really commits a crime or or hasn't committed a crime. Either way, well, Biden was pointing out it's very hard for the U.S. government to get its citizens released. 
looking ahead, what does this say about U.S. relations with Russia? The president did say that the Russian government had made an unreasonable demand in exchange for Paul Whelan. So I think what this says to us is that while they are talking through with the help of an intermediary, in this case, the United Arab Emirates, these two countries are not seeing eye to eye and not in a good place. They are far from being reconciled in any way, shape or form, and it's extremely adversarial. Mostly, of course, because of the war in Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine in February. The United States is providing weapons and money to Ukraine's government. Clearly, the United States said it's allies in NATO want Russia to lose that war. So by no means can we say that U.S.-Russia relations are good. This is just one of those cases where uh, a deal was struck. Yes, and I'm sure for the family of Brittany Griner, they are very, very happy that she is safe. Moving on, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in a highly publicized Georgia runoff election. So what does this mean for Democrats now? Technically, nothing. It's a shot in the arm. But in terms of the Senate majority, they already had that locked up after the November midterm election when the Democrats performed better than expectations. So this adds one more voice, one more vote. It's important to note that Raphael Warnock, who is the preacher at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, this is the church that Martin Luther King Jr. preached at. That's why you may have heard of this church. He has previously reached across the aisle and worked with Republican senators, including Ted Cruz of Texas, who, if you know anything about American politics, is a senator with very firmly held opinions. So this is a senator who has a demonstration history of bipartisanship who's now going back to the Senate. That is going to, one imagines, if he continues this trend, is going to impact on the dynamics of this elected body, and that's going to be important going forward. But in terms of the sheer numbers, the Democrats already were over the line before Warnock was given this victory. Well, Anita, I think it makes a difference the Senate has been 50-50, half and half Democrats, Republicans. So uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, often had to cast a tie-breaking vote. And there could be one or two Senate Democrats who didn't want to go along with President Biden or with the other Democrats. And so this gives, if you will, more breathing room. And also in the committees of the United States Senate, now the Democrats clearly have a majority and can set the agenda. That can be important considering that the Democrats in November lost control of the other chamber, the House of Representatives. So the Republicans will start controlling the committees there beginning in January. And really, the House is going to be quite different and what they're investigating and giving the Biden administration a hard time. And so all in all, I just know that the Democrats, including White House staff, feel much better that Warnock won. But in addition, Warnock's opponent, the Republican Herschel Walker, known as a football star in the past, he was handpicked by former President Donald Trump. So Herschel Walker losing this past Tuesday is again a defeat for Trump's favorite candidates. And it does pretty clearly weaken Donald Trump in his political influence, including in the Republican Party. This is an excellent point. This does actually take Trump out at the knees or brings him down a few inches, I think. Let's just 
remind everybody of the divisive nature of American politics. Warnock won with 51.4%. Walker still got 48.6% of the vote. So it would be inaccurate to say that he doesn't have support. In this case, the voters that went for Warnock and pushed him over the line were urban voters in Georgia and in the, in the metropoles of Georgia. And this is important because this is a dynamic we see played out around the world. I think a lot of our listeners are very familiar with urban rural political divides. We very much have that in the United States as well. And that's what kind of pushed Warnock over the edge. But it still was, I think, fairly narrow in that sense. I would maybe not count out the Republican Party and Donald Trump at this stage just yet. And also, uh, Dan, you had mentioned the House of Representatives. The House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, who's running for speaker, has a challenger and its former leader of the Freedom Caucus, Representative Andy Biggs, who revived his challenge to his GOP colleagues. So how will this impact the Republican Party? Well, there'll be a bit of a mess as the next Congress comes into being the first week of January. A new Speaker of the House has to be elected. It has been Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat. She won't even continue as leader of the Democratic Party. She's uh, decided to remain a member of Congress, but yield that role. And because the Republicans have the majority in the new Congress, or will have the majority, the Republicans, in effect, get to choose who is the new House Speaker. Almost everybody thinks it will be Kevin McCarthy, who in general has remained loyal to Donald Trump, by the way. But he has to watch the more moderate wing of the party, the right wing of the party. And I think Andy Biggs and his challenges representing what we might call the right wing or the Freedom Caucus. I think McCarthy will be House Speaker. But again, Democrats are kind of happy to see the Republicans having trouble because for years, the Democrats have clearly had divisions between their moderates, including Nancy Pelosi and, if you will, the left wing. But that's intra-party politics for you. Just to illustrate the numbers, there are 222 Republicans right now in the House of Representatives. And in order to become speaker, you need a vote of 218. It's very unlikely in this divided Congress that any Democrats are going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. So he needs 218 votes, but he only has 222 that he can pull from. And so what Biggs does here, Biggs only really has to get four or five votes to really be trouble and to be a spoiler for this process, which is the mess that Dan was referring to. This is going to cause a lot of drama, and this is going to give a lot of opportunity for the wing of the Republican Party that Biggs represents, which is the Trump-aligned wing of the party, to kind of say things in this public forum and and kind of check in on their values and their priorities. And that's going to be very interesting to hear as we move forward in this new Congress. President Biden visited the site for a new computer chip plant in Arizona, using it as a chance to emphasize how his policies are fostering job growth. But with the high inflation and Americans feeling the pinch in their wallets, how will the Biden administration sell this to the public that more U.S. chip production will change Americans' lives? Well, it undoubtedly will, because one of the issues when we had the chip shortage was the supply chain issues, because these chips were made halfway across the world and couldn't get here. You need these chips for 
devices that you use every day, you know, your phone, your computer, your car, your electric car, all of these devices use these chips and they were halfway across the world. Now they're going to be here. That makes them not just easier to get into American products, that makes them safer in that they are kind of the intellectual property and can be overseen from this country. So there are fewer security risks to these very sensitive, very small, small devices, which one imagines have a lot of potential for interference and can be used in many creative ways by malicious governments. The other thing is this is a $40 billion investment. It's the largest investment that's been made in Arizona that anyone can remember. And it's made by a small island the TSMC, that's the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And this is really important geopolitically, because as we know, there's a lot of tension right now between China and Taiwan. And U.S. policy supports the one China policy, which says that Taiwan is part of China. For Taiwan to be stepping out and pouring this much money into an American state is a signal of closer relations between Washington and Taipei. It is significant. And I think it cannot be seen as positive by Beijing. Well, a brief word about U.S. politics when it comes to that visit to the state of Arizona by President Biden. First, Republicans and their supporters in what we consider the conservative media here kept saying, if he's going to Arizona, why doesn't he go to the southern border with Mexico and do something about the influx of illegal immigrants coming over from Mexico? The White House said, hello, we're talking about a major investment in chips for the high-tech industries. Let's keep the focus there. Also in politics, by the way, Arizona is a state that's always in play between Democrats and Republicans. So again, the White House and Democrats think, oh, this was politically very good for the Democrats. Good points on that. And now let's go over to New York, where a jury in Manhattan found former President Donald Trump's company guilty of a long-running criminal tax fraud scheme that lasted into his presidency. So really looking at this and the other ongoing investigations, what does all this mean for Trump, who announced last month that he's running for president? Well, I'm making no joke when I say that the verdict in New York harms the image of Donald Trump. Again, Americans who don't like Trump were not surprised that his real estate company was violating the law. Supporters of Trump say, as does Trump himself, oh, it's all part of a witch hunt. The fact is that the former president wasn't convicted of anything, but investigations are continuing in New York, Georgia, and elsewhere, including a federal investigation into how the former president handled secret documents, which he was found to have in Florida at his home even after his presidential term was over. So the controversies continue, but so do the criminal investigations of Donald Trump himself. Right. And I just want to emphasize the magnitude of this, because this is one of the five major cases that Trump and his organization are embroiled in. But this jury found the Trump organization guilty on all 17 counts. This is definitely a financial blow to the Trump organization. This is a reputational blow. And he still has to contend with the classified documents investigation, the January 6th investigation, which the Congressional Committee sunsets in a few weeks at the end of this year. And they say that they still have work to do. And then, you know, the Manhattan DA is looking into him for financial crimes. And then possibly most impactfully in Georgia, he's being investigated at the county level for possible election 
election interference. And the reason I say that that's most significant is that that DA can press criminal charges. And so that might be the next chip to fall. So it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, Ukrainian technicians work to restore electricity following Moscow's latest wave of missile strikes. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell, and Moment magazine contributor Dan Ravive. While Ukrainian residents brace for a cold, dark winter as Russia continues its missile strikes that have caused widespread power outages across the country. So what has been the latest move by the White House and NATO regarding Russia's continued attacks? Well, they're continuing to feed the Ukraine war machine and to provide weapons for Ukraine. That does hang in the balance because there's another 37 or $38 billion that the White House is seeking from Congress as supplemental funding to boost these capabilities. And right now, with all of this political uncertainty in Congress, that hangs in the balance. So that's where we are right now. The United States wants to send generators, you know, that generally uh, burn gasoline to provide electricity. And so we have heard from the Biden administration that generators will go there and cash. There's part of the U.S. government called the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and they want to send the largest cash assistance program in history to a foreign country. I did say cash. Because officials here in Washington say they have found that distributing money directly to people overseas, outside America, that's the most effective way to help them get the food and clothing and the fuel that they need. Also, the other aspect of this, the EU, alongside with the G7 and Australia, agreed to limit the purchases of Russian oil to $60 a barrel as part of a concerted effort to curtail Moscow's ability to fund its war in Ukraine. Is this strategy going to work to cap oil from Russia? That's the big question. And here's one important thing about this product that Russia is exporting. They're exporting largely crude oil. And the reason that's important is that they can only then sell it to countries that have refining capabilities, which are a lot of these G7 countries. For example, South Africa has indicated that they might be interested in buying Russian oil, but they don't have refining capabilities. So what are they going to do with this crude oil that lands on their shores? They can't do anything with it. So this is definitely an issue for Russia because they're selling a product that cannot be immediately used. And that's going to be an issue. Let's get our last topic in. China recently announced revisions to some of its harshest anti-COVID policies. This is a significant step for the country, though there are still many mandates in place. Your comments on these latest revisions. It's worth remembering that it's now three years since COVID-19, this coronavirus, first appeared, and China was the first place it appeared. Here in Washington, Congress next year is likely to have hearings on how the pandemic began, whether China can be blamed, whether the U.S. did not point a finger of blame. So there's a big political issue there. But more than anything, it's been an economic question mark. China has really slowed 
slowdown in economic growth, meaning China is not much of a customer for goods from outside, and China's not producing as much as it did for the world, which added to the supply chain problems that Anita spoke about in this program. And so if there really is a turn that China has decided it can live with COVID-19, maybe China will start using more effective vaccines, or maybe China will actually suffer a lot more hospitalizations and deaths. And so we're really wondering what the effect will be on the second largest economy on the planet. But I think what is significant is this appears to be a reaction to these widespread public protests, which I think is a sign that China's population is more empowered today than it was yesterday. And that is significant. And I have to wonder about how this population newly empowered by their own voice is going to take this discussion and what they're going to be asking their government for going forward. And the other thing I just want to add is that there is a coronavirus surge expected right now in China. And that's also going to factor into how the Chinese public and how civil society manages this discussion about making demands of their government. But what I think they have learned from this experience, that their voices were heard. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Anita, what has been weighing on your mind this week? Well, I'd like to take you into my very weird world as a White House correspondent. Last Thursday, I was the pool reporter for the first Biden state dinner, and that was with France and with French President Emmanuel Macron, who I must add, winked in my general direction, which was a highlight of my experience as a White House correspondent. But I just want to talk about what this state visit kind of communicated, because this was more than just a meeting of two like-minded countries. This seemed to be a sign that the developing world, that the G7 is not just united and that France is at the head of the pack, but that maybe we're seeing now a shift. The term that came to mind as I watched all of this pomp from morning to night, the honor guard, the ball gowns, the entertainment was la célébrité, which is let the good times roll. This was the message that was being broadcast by these two leaders. And what weighs on my mind is that obviously COVID was well in the background. But I just want to underscore that when we dealt with the HIV pandemic, and it was called a pandemic back in the day, the U.S. reached its peak in the late 90s, its peak of infections. Now they're declining in the U.S., whereas the developing world reached its peak in the mid-2000s, like around 2006. And so we're seeing this image of these two presidents without masks, with their beautiful wives and their beautiful ball gowns, just living it up here in Washington and projecting this idea that like it's time to move on and the roaring 20s have started. Whereas I think it's clear that that's not going to be the reality in other parts of the world. So we're just getting this dissonance and this bifurcation of experience between the wealthy countries and the rest of the world. And that really weighs on my mind because that makes me feel sad for people who might be suffering outside of the limelight and not getting the attention and they might still be dying of COVID, might still be suffering. And those people weigh on my mind. 
Well, what a strong and poignant way of seeing it, Anita, because on my mind is kind of a set of concerns about the economy in the United States and overseas. And I say the economy because it often gets measured in the month of December. We're at holiday time, including Christmas, in which a lot of people do shopping for gifts and for new electronic toys and appliances. And people are wondering in America, will Americans feel confident enough to spend a lot of money to travel on family visits? And then think about the rest of the world where it's the same thing. People try to have a happy holiday, but with so many question marks about the world economy, one wonders. The specific issue in the U.S. and some other Western economies is inflation. Prices have been rising very quickly in the past year or so. And America's central bank, the Federal Reserve, has pledged to get that rate of inflation down and therefore has raised interest rates, making it harder to borrow money, hoping to slow down the economy. At just a time apparently coming out of the COVID pandemic that so many people want to think the pandemic's over, we can spend, we can feel good and confident in our jobs, but not everyone does feel confident. And so, Anita, I'll join you in saying that it is largely a bifurcation story where some people are going to do fine, spend a lot here at holiday time, and others aren't doing fine, and they're worried and they may not be able to pay their energy bills, a big problem in Europe, but also in developing countries. And that's really something to watch and keep on our minds. And we will end the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and Moment Magazine contributor Dan Revive. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.